This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 16, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Lizzie Wade joins Alexa Billow to discuss what forensic anthropologists are doing in Veracruz, Mexico, to help grieving parents look for disappeared family members. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on talking monkeys. Why can't monkeys talk? (laughs) What would they say if they could? And most importantly, what would they sound like? Dave, did you have an imagined monkey voice in your head, you know, before hearing the clip that we're about to play? I guess maybe Caesar from Planet of the Apes, although I know he's not a monkey. (laughs) He is a chimpanzee. Something like that. Something a little, uh, a little deep, a little, uh, a little guttural, maybe. I, you know, I had that the monkey butler voice in my head, I'm pretty sure. Monkey the, butler? The smooth British monkey oh, butler voice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to play the clip. Will you marry me? Um, so your idea of what a monkey voice sounded like, it wasn't creepy, beyond the grave type marriage proposal <laughs> like we just heard. Why does this sound the way it does? Where did the research team come up with this voice? You know, this all goes back to this question of why can't our closest primate relatives, chimpanzees, bonobos, even monkeys, why can't they talk? And for a long time, scientists have thought, well, maybe they just don't have the right vocal anatomy to talk. Maybe their vocal cords aren't arranged in the right way. But that doesn't is not very a, a very satisfying explanation, especially when you consider that animals like parrots and elephants can make noises actually very similar to human speech, and they have a radically different anatomy than we do and and that a lot of our primate relatives do. So the alternate explanation is that their brains aren't controlling their physiology the way our brains control our physiology. Right. And the researchers tried to figure out which was the case by making a monkey make a lot of faces, do a lot of things in an x-ray machine. Right. They turned to a long-tailed macaque named Emiliano, and they didn't ask him to talk. What they did have him do was eat yawn, make a variety of vocalizations and lip smacks. While he was doing this, they shot x-ray video of him. And then what they did with this x-ray video is they actually used it to reconstruct his vocal anatomy, how he created sounds, 
And then they fed this into a computer program and they basically had this computer program say the audio that you just played, will you marry me? And based on that, they concluded that yes, monkeys theoretically could talk like people. Right. And I listened to the human version of this. So they did something similar with people. I'll play it. Will you marry me? It doesn't sound that much different. So this isn't (laughs) really, uh, you know, monkeys sound like ghostly voices. It's just, this is the best a computer simulation can do with those components. Exactly. And, you know, fundamentally what it's showing in the very least, you know, we can argue over the quality of the recording, but it shows that at least monkeys could theoretically produce these types of sounds. And, you know, if we heard them, we would be able to sort of understand what they were saying. Getting back to this age-old question, then, this does suggest that this is about the brains. Right, because now we now this study seems to indicate that, you know, anatomy is fine. Like, they have the anatomy to talk like we do. So that really leaves the question of, well, why don't they? And that gets back to another idea for why monkeys can't talk, that they there's something about the way their brains are wired that doesn't allow them to talk. We know that there have been mutations in some human genes over evolutionary history for example, a gene called FOXP2, which seems to allow us to talk. And it's possible that those or other genetic changes are not present in some of our primate relatives, which prevents them from talking like us, even though they have the vocal anatomy to do so. Now we have a story on a very old viral infection. For this story, the setting is key. Iron Age Germany, about 600 to 540 BCE. Someone ends up with their organs and their blood in a large jar. How do researchers think they got there? Well, one idea is that there was a high-status individual in this region who developed some disturbing symptoms, large bruises, bleeding from the nose and gums, and bloody diarrhea and urine. His fellow villagers may have been shocked or maybe even intrigued by these symptoms so that when he died, they stored his blood and organs in pottery vessels and interred them in a burial mound. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what happened. What we do know is this study shows that it's possible to recover proteins from these ancient pottery vessels that give us a sense of what was inside them. And in this case, we know for sure that there was blood and organs, human blood and organs, inside these pottery vessels, and that this individual may have died from a fairly interesting disease. What do we know about the disease that this individual had? Well, in addition to recovering proteins that indicate that there was human blood and organs in these vessels, researchers found proteins related to what's called the Crimean-Congo hemorrhagic fever virus. And this is a severe tick-borne disease that still kills people across the world today. Now, what's really interesting about finding this virus in this pottery is that this is the first identification of this virus or any hemorrhagic fever virus in the entire archaeological record. And it could indicate that potentially there was an epidemic of this virus in this region at this time, or maybe that this was an individual who came from a region that had an epidemic. Well, we've seen something like this before, you know, with ancient epidemiology where they trace back leprosy or smallpox. How is this particular finding different? Well, this is different because usually when we're looking at the history of smallpox or other viruses or other pathogens, we're looking for DNA or, or RNA. And that's been pretty effective, but the problem is that DNA and RNA are a lot less stable than proteins. Proteins can actually be preserved for theoretically millions of years. Last up, we have a story on cloning horses for sport. Can we start with this stated fact? I know little to nothing 
about polo. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> Who's good at it? How to be good at it? Why horses are even needed? I don't know, but they are. And this month, one rider playing polo used six different clones of the same horse in one polo match. Why, Dave? <laughs> well, let's back up a little bit and be clear that this isn't just any rider. This is Adolfo Cambiasso, who... If that's not a household name to you, you probably don't watch polo, but he's actually considered the world's best polo player. And he's actually been riding cloned horses since 2013. This is the first very high-profile tournament that he's ridden six cloned horses in, which makes this story newsworthy. Right, and they're all clones of one horse. You know, this surprised me because I think of clones as falling to a few categories. Mice and other research animals, beloved pets. And Star Wars. No. <laughs> you know, it, it just it doesn't really, I didn't think about, you know, expect to run these across clones in sports. You know, who is making cloned horses for sporting events? Well, there's a reason you don't hear a lot about clones in sports. That's because a lot of sports ban them. In fact, you can't use clones in horse racing. You can use them in polo. Mm-hmm. And these clones come courtesy of a company called Crestview Genetics, which has cloned more than 200 horses since 2009. And the, and the view of the founder of this company is that the rider's success in these tournaments owes just as much, if not more, to the horse than to the rider himself. Does it actually work? Does cloning a horse that's like a very good athlete get you what you need? I would see there be objections based on epigenetics or environment. Right. Well, you know, critics have said that clones don't perform as well as the original horse. And there's been, you know, in the early days of cloning, there was a lot of disease and death um, and frailty with clones. And so there was this question of whether clones were as good as the original. And then also in, in a sport like polo or even horse racing, you know, the idea of cloning a horse is, you know, you're not making that horse any better. You know, the idea when you're talking about it, sort of trying to improve an animal, make it faster or more agile, is you keep on breeding and breeding and breeding to get better and better every generation. But cloning doesn't get you better. It just gets you the same. But what advocates of the technology will say is, well, first of all, if you've already got a really good horse. Why mess with perfection? Just mm-hmm. just use that again. And, and there are other advantages as well, because if you're, you're used to how a particular horse rides, then you don't have to get used to a whole new horse. You can just ride a clone of that horse. One thing I noticed looking at the picture in this story is there are six horses. They all have a different star on their forehead, a different mark on their forehead, even though they're clones of each other. It really just indicates to me that these are not the same horse. Well, you know, another concern from critics is that it's not just the genetics of an animal, whether it's a human or a horse, that determines who we are. It's sort of how we're raised and even the environment in the womb. And for these cloned horses, what the owners have really tried to do is make sure that they are raised in a very similar environment as the original horse was. And that comes down to the same color blankets that are put on the horse, the same color of dogs that are around mm-hmm. the horse. So they're really trying to control for these environmental factors as well. Okay, Dave, before we get to what else is on the site this week, let's do a little quiz. Dave, hit me with your best shot. Okay, Sarah, almost 40% of people in this country marry their first cousins or other close relatives leading to genetically influenced diseases in up to 8% of all children. Is it Korea, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, or Singapore? I'm going Singapore. Sarah, you are incorrect. It is Saudi Arabia, and that's largely because many Arabs marry cousins or other close relatives, and this has increased the rate of inherited genetic diseases. And we've, we've got a nice big feature story on the topic on the site this week, which delves into what genetics experts, especially in this part of the world, are trying to do to address the issue. Okay. 
All right. Thanks, Dave. Let's uh, talk about what else is on the site this week. We've got a story about reprogramming cells in mice to slow down their aging process and whether that can be applied to humans. Also, a story about a zombie outbreak reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. What's going on with that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about scientists' reactions to President-elect Donald Trump's latest picks for his new administration, including the head of the Department of Energy. Also, why Colombia is reporting a huge jump in babies harmed by the Zika virus. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Capital One knows you've got questions about your credit. You may be asking, who's really in charge of my credit score? Or how does my credit actually work? That's why Capital One created the CreditWise app. So you can check your credit score anytime you want right in the app. And it's free to everyone, Capital One customer or not. In fact, millions of CreditWise users have improved their score by 20 points or more. So download the app for free today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on the presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank USA NA. It's terrible when a loved one goes missing. It's much worse when families can't get the help and support they need from authorities. Disappearances are epidemic in Veracruz, Mexico, and the resources to track down all these people simply don't exist. Now, physical anthropologists are becoming involved in these families' attempts to find their children. Reporter Lizzie Wade is here to talk about the role these anthropologists can actually play in helping these families. I'm Alexa Billo. Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This might be kind of a touchy question, but who is actually responsible for these disappearances? Who is nabbing people and why aren't they being reported or investigated? So it's sort of a confluence of a couple of forces in Mexico, principally among them is organized crime, like drug cartels, which they do a lot more than than sell drugs. They're involved in human trafficking, forced labor, things like that. So a lot of people who are disappeared are probably captured in some way or another by by drug cartels and other organized crime groups. But also a lot of human rights groups have investigated the situation and they've also come to the conclusion that the police and the military are involved in a pretty significant number of these disappearances. They seem to be targeting young men in particular. So where are they going? So some of them are probably killed either because the cartels think they know something or they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some of them are probably taken for forced labor, so this would be something like working in the fields. And some are picked up for human trafficking and prostitutions, and that's more young women. And those numbers do seem to be a little bit less. So in your piece this week, there are a couple of different players. You've got this collective of mostly mothers, moms and other folks who have lost loved ones to disappearances, and they're looking on their own, basically, for these people. And then there's this group of anthropologists called MF, and in your piece, they meet up. What are they doing? What are their goals? 
So the anthropologists want to work with these families to sort of teach them how a search for a disappeared person works in kind of an ideal situation. This is a pretty common thing that's happened all over Latin America in contexts where there have been a lot of disappearances, like you saw in Argentina during the military dictatorship. This great anthropology group grew out of that. But it's kind of always these family groups, and particularly mothers, who start looking for disappeared people on their own when the state has proven that they don't have much interest in doing it. And the anthropologists want to come in and sort of help them understand what it means to search for a disappeared person, what they're likely to see if they do dig up graves, what counts as forensic evidence, and how best to to make sure it's preserved during an excavation, things like that. So MF, they're not trying to turn out fully trained scientists overnight. You're not going to go to a couple of workshops and come out the other end with a PhD. So what is the purpose of teaching these families these skills? Yeah, you know, the longest workshops they give are six days over the course of a couple of weekends. So obviously, you're not going to become a physical anthropologist in six days. But the point is, these mothers are doing excavations of a mass grave. So they're seeing a lot of dead bodies. They're seeing excavations. And crucially, they're also seeing a federal police force that's working with them who come in and do the excavations. And MF's idea with teaching them how forensic anthropology works is that once, if the mothers understand what kind of evidence needs to be preserved, what kind of techniques in an ideal situation you would use, they can kind of evaluate those methods, sort of judge whether or not this is really the best way to go and kind of improve their own practices and put pressure on the authorities if they see, if they see practices that they're not happy with in the police force. And also, you know, the anthropologists have given them a lot of legal help because you find a body, a grave, you can document all the context around it, including clothes or states of decomposition, which can tell you a lot about the time someone was buried or killed. But, you know, if there's no investigation supporting that knowledge, it's hard to make it go anywhere. So the anthropologists also want to make sure that the families know how to pressure the state to do those investigations. So, for example, when they are excavating this mass grave, there's some kind of investigative weight behind that. They can say, okay, based on our investigations, we think these kinds of people, these specific people are probably in that mass grave. So then that's a hypothesis that the authorities can then test with identifications. If the bodies are just coming out of the ground with no context at all, it's really hard to identify them, even if their DNA happens to be in a database somewhere. It's almost impossible to conclusively identify someone if, if you don't have an investigation behind it. This collective, this group of moms and other people, uh, as you referenced, are excavating what amounts to a mass grave. So how did they find this? How did they start excavating it? Sure. So this has happened in a few places in Mexico in the last couple of years where families are frustrated with the government's lack of action on their cases and they just sort of go out around their towns or cities and start digging up bodies. And, you know, in a lot of states in Mexico, you can dig almost anywhere and find bodies. But this case, it was really interesting. It's in the state of Veracruz and in the city of Veracruz, which is the major port in that state. And so the, this mother's group had formed this family group called Solicito, and they had a Mother's Day rally this year, you know, to protest the government's inaction, bring attention to the disappearances. And during that rally, you know, some people sort of 
slipped into the crowd and started hanging out these pieces of paper like ads people hand you on the street. And, the, you know, a lot of people didn't really pay attention. Nobody really noticed who they were. It seemed pretty innocuous. But it turned out that those pieces of paper were directions to this mass grave in a neighborhood in Veracruz. And so for a long time, Solicito didn't really know what to do. They didn't know where this information had come from. They weren't totally equipped to investigate themselves. Obviously, they're just civilians. But eventually, they decided to go out and see in the corner of this map that the directions were leading to. There's this sort of cluster of crosses labeled bodies. And so they decided to go to this field and dig it up and see what they found. And they found over 100 bodies since August, and it's the largest mass grave discovered in Mexico so far. Why can't MF help them actually excavate this grave? So that's a question I think a lot of people have. You know, like physical anthropologists often do these kind of humanitarian exhumations, especially in places, you know, that have suffered from conflicts or epidemics of disappearances like in Mexico. But MF at this point, the state is responding somewhat to these cases and MF really wants to work within that context. So they feel like if there is identification of these bodies, if there is ever a trial around one or several of them, they want their anthropological expertise to have legal weight. And they feel like if they just went out and did an excavation on their own, the government might be able to discredit that work because it could be seen as biased. So that to them, it's really important that they do everything in full view of the authorities. And also part of the point of MF's work is not just to identify a body here or there. You know, they do that as expert witnesses. But part of the point of the workshops is to really sort of create change from the ground up in Mexican society, like teach people their rights and how to demand them, which is something that that people haven't really been taught in Mexico. They really want to make a better a better country. And to do that is not really just enough to identify a couple of bodies and then move on. You know, you, you really have to get involved in kind of the legal aspect and the human rights aspect and kind of encourage and teach people how to advocate for themselves in really what amounts to the worst moments of their lives. So is there any closure on the horizon for these families as a result of these combined efforts to pressure the authorities into action? Well, I think, you know, to to really improve Mexican handling of disappearance in law enforcement and things like that, that's a really long road. There have been some improvements in the last couple of years, amazingly. And, you know, so I don't think anyone thinks tomorrow these cases will be investigated appropriately and everyone will go to jail and organized crime will stop having such an influence in the country. But there is possibility that some of these bodies will be identified. Solicito is working with a group of forensic investigators from the federal police, and they expect an update in January about how the work has gone, perhaps the first identifications, if any, have been possible. So, you know, there there might be closure in in a few cases, but on a larger scale, I think it will be a long time before the social forces in Mexico that created this crisis are resolved, if ever. Grim, but it's a much-needed effort. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Lizzie Wade writes a feature article about the anthropologists trying to help the families of Mexico's missing persons in this week's news. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. 
or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.